everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Tax Chick Podcast. I'm excited about this one today, but I, I mean, I'm always excited about my podcast episodes, but in particular, I'm excited about this one because I'm talking about some topics that fall into my favorite, favorite thing to do as a tax lawyer, which is to be a tax litigator. So I don't often talk on this platform about one of the hugest pieces of my practice, which is helping clients through audits and appeals to the Tax Court of Canada. It is truly my passion, truly my love, and my favorite thing to do is to meet up with other other tax litigators in Canada and have a great chat with them. And that's what I do today on this episode. So I happened to connect with Dean Blatchford, who's a tax lawyer in Ottawa, who is a tax litigator and has his own firm. And Dean and I had never formally crossed paths before, but ended up connecting over LinkedIn in the last couple of months and had these great conversations about what we were seeing with our clients in terms of common audit issues that were popping up and realized, hey, we should do an episode on this. Uh, So I'm really excited to share this with you. We're talking about three things that typically lead to audits that are preventable and that are things that our clients can be doing at the front end to try to prepare themselves. And so those three things are, number one, we talk about shareholder loan accounts. So what are they? What should you be documenting? The importance of not treating your corporate bank account like your personal bank account. We also talk a bit about net worth assessments and net worth audits, what those are, how you can prepare yourself in the event that you have one, and what you should do if that comes uh, your way. And then the third item is input tax credits or ITCs. And so again, we're going to talk about what these are uh, and the documentation you have to have in place uh, to make sure you can properly claim them. And the purpose of today's episode is to really provide some foundational information on these topics. If you are a business owner, you are likely running into these, at least two out of these three things on a regular basis. And so we're hoping to give you some tips and some tricks to have your documentation in place so that it's not quite so scary if an auditor comes knocking. A little bit about Dean uh, before we move into the episode. So Dean is a senior tax lawyer and he specializes exclusively in tax dispute resolution and litigation. And he created his own law firm specifically to help clients obtain the best possible outcomes of their tax disputes. He was previously the lead of the tax dispute resolution and litigation team at Haslow Law Business Lawyers. And he began his career as a lawyer for the judges of the Tax Court of Canada. I'm super jealous. I always wanted to clerk at the Tax Court of Canada. So he was selected for their very prestigious clerkship program. And this gave him a behind-the-scenes perspective on what it takes to win tax disputes. He graduated from the University of McGill's Faculty of Law with degrees in common law and civil law. And I think you're really going to enjoy our chat today. So without further ado, on to the episode. Well, welcome, Dean, to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you on with us today. Really happy to be here, Amanda. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I, it's fun. Always fun to chat with another tax litigator. I feel like we're all we're all of the same sort of vein. We're all kind of scrappy, and we all love to chat about these topics. And so, these are some of my favorite episodes when I get to talk to a, a fellow litigator. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've certainly enjoyed your previous episodes on tax dispute stuff. It was nice to be reassured that there's other people out there who are approaching it the same way I am, uh, and, and now happy to talk to you about it too. 
Well, we've got some great topics lined up for today, but I, I had said to you that I, I'm curious to ask you the same two questions that I always like to ask my guests when they come on, because um, I don't think you and I have really talked about this. So one of the, the first questions I always ask is, what is the last podcast episode you listened to or your favorite podcast? Well, the last one I listened to is, is maybe not that exciting, but it's called Stories Podcast. And I listen to it with my daughter when we're in the car and it's like 15 minutes. Uh, they're not bedtime stories. They're just kind of stories that are done by these three folks down in the U.S. And they're they're hilarious and she loves them and it makes the car ride easier. But I'm not like plugging her into an iPad. So I feel better about that. And uh, yeah, I actually kind of enjoy them myself now. Well, I'm going to have to check that out because I sometimes like to have something like in my ear as I'm getting ready for bed or if, you know, you're cooking dinner that's not educational, that you're not having to super focus on, but just having someone talk at you. So I'll check that one out. That's a new yeah, one. Sure. <laughs> now, I don't know if you're an emoji guy, but if you're if you're texting, what is the emoji you'd use most often when you were texting? Yeah, I am not an emoji guy. I <laughs> might occasionally, occasionally put in the colon and uh, and bracket. Uh, Whoa, you're is, old school. Yeah, that's that's the most that's the most <laughs> I do. I had a feeling you weren't an emoji guy. You just didn't seem like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. That's okay. We're not here to talk about emojis, so we're good. Right. So we we had a great chat about sort of the questions that we're getting the most often from clients and other advisors um, in our role as tax litigators. And we tried to brainstorm what we were calling common tax disputes or sort of common issues. And we'd come up with three of them. Now, of course, there was more. We had more, but we narrowed it down to three. And so we thought we'd try to tackle just those three today. And, and so if you're listening to this and you're a business owner, um, or if you're an advisor who's advising business owners, what our goal today is to give some very high level information about issues that you can identify and, and ways to kind of prevent or, or deal with these situations when they arise. So we're not going to go technical today. We're going to go really high level, but some real practical advice and just things that we're seeing. So the three topics we thought we would tackle is uh, shareholder loan accounts gotta love the shareholder loan accounts and the ins and the outs and how those are not your personal bank account. Um, the second topic we thought we'd talk about is net worth assessments because uh, those are those are popping up fairly regularly to make sure everyone understands what they are and what you do if one happens to you. And then we thought we'd tackle input tax credits, uh, which is another one that we see popping up quite often. So I, I wonder if we should dive right in, Dean. What do you think? Yeah, the only thing I would say is like a preliminary comment is just all of this is designed to help you and, you, and your clients or, or you yourself avoid tax disputes because uh, they are brutal and, and you and I see them on a regular basis and we see them in, in their later stages sometimes. And, and these are things that can go on three years, four years uh, and can be, yeah, some of the most, uh, you know, stressful experiences in your life for a, for a business owner or just a human being. So anything that you pick up in this session that helps you keep your books a little tighter, um, be a little more diligent or advise your clients on how to do that, I, I think is, is serving you well. That's a really great point, Dean, because I think these topics that we're going to talk about are the things that people tend to dip their toe in without even realizing it, that they're actually making a mistake. And it's not an intentional mistake. It's just, oops, I, I thought this was okay. And so if we can give a little bit of knowledge so that you don't inadvertently jump in this pool, that's uh, that's the best way to avoid an audit on these issues. 100%. 
So should we start with shareholder loan accounts and and maybe just a very brief summary of, you know, what is a shareholder loan account for people listening and and some things that you have to keep in mind uh, with those accounts? Sure. So if you are a business owner, uh, your corporation, your corporation's books will have a shareholder loan account that is intended to keep track of the money that you invest in your corporation, that you loan to your corporation, and any payments that the corporation makes back to you for that loan or, or loans back to you. Uh, so that's the basics of a shareholder loan account. You think I got that, Amanda? I, I like that. That was a great explanation. Okay. So where I'm seeing the, the major audits that come out of of issues with shareholder loan accounts, and we're talking about audits that can hit taxpayers with bills of 100,000, 200,000, 500,000 million, is when, is when shareholder is loaned money to their corporation. You know, often at the beginning, when, when there's a few lean years at the beginning, they're getting the corporation up and moving, they have to make an initial investment. Or maybe later on when they've decided to do a renovation or some sort of big investment later in the business, is that the money goes into the corporation the shareholder knows that they have that money in the corporation that they're entitled to receive back tax-free. So as a result, you know, when there's money in the account and they need it to spend on their personal life, they pull that money back out of the corporation. The problem is if you're not communicating closely enough with your bookkeeper or your accountant is when those withdrawals from the, from the corporation aren't being recorded properly in your shareholder loan account. So maybe you started off by investing $200,000 in the corporation if you pull out $100,000 from that, uh, from the corporation in a particular year, and you don't record it as salary, or you don't record it as a repayment of your shareholder loan account, and then CRA comes and audits you, that $100,000 of, of what should be after tax dollars that you should not pay tax on, if it's not reported properly, CRA will treat it as a appropriation from your corporation and we'll treat it as income to you personally. And that's the double whammy. That's the one that's really, really awful when a client calls me and they've got that problem. Because then you end up with a personal reassessment where they've taken those funds and they've put them into your personal income and taxed you on it and potentially hit you with penalties, gross negligence, civil penalties. Plus, they've also hit you on the corporate side. So it, it looks like the double taxation of income that was supposed to be tax-free to begin with. So it's a real harsh one and very difficult to get out of. Yeah, you would think that you would just be able to explain to CRA, hey, there's this error, let me go back, let me fix it, I'll work with my accountant. But we've seen, and even just this past year, there was another case that went up to the Federal Court of Appeal where the, the court said, sorry, it's too late now. If CRA catches you before you've addressed it yourself, um, you're on the hook and there's kind of no going back. Well, and I remember someone once described to me when I was starting out as a tax lawyer that the best way to explain to clients about their corporate bank account is to have you think about that bank account as somebody else's bank account. So think about it as like your friend's bank account or um, you know, your, your client's bank account. And, and you wouldn't just go into that bank account and start taking stuff out without somehow justifying why you were taking stuff out. Nor would you just put stuff in randomly without justifying what you're putting in. And if you can think about your corporate bank account in that way and make sure that when you're going in and when you're taking out, there's some sort of a record and you're keeping track of that, you will save yourself so many headaches. Yeah, 
it, it exactly i think it also your comments dovetail with the with the other issue which is 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 related is where you just have someone who's kind of who has a credit card maybe in the corporation's name or they use their personal credit card for their business expenses and then the money is just literally going in and out in and out all the time um your accountant might help you deal with that and might tell you they can deal with it and might sort it out at the end of the year with your bookkeeper. But my experience is it, it just, there's tons of exposure there. You're setting yourself up for major risk and, um, and you're not, you're not kind of going to audit yourself at the end of the year. So you never really know if it's being done properly. Uh, it's just not, it's just not worth, it's not worth it. I, I completely agree with you. And and this perhaps segues into another thing on these shareholder loan accounts, which is accounts that are overdrawn. And when you're taking you know loans from your company and what the implications of that is, because I think a lot of people think, well, it's still my money. I run the company. I'm the only director, officer, and shareholder. What is the big deal? I'm just going to pull out you know 200000 call it a day, and I'll just repay it when I feel like it. Uh, right. So perhaps we can talk a bit about that too. Yeah, so that definitely leads to awkward conversations with, uh, <laughs> your, with your tax lawyer. Um, yeah, so there's there's rules with regards to the amount that you can take out to loan yourself from your corporation. If you're gonna if you're gonna do major loans to yourself from the corporation, you want to be talking to your accountant about that first. You want to have a really clear uh, plan for repaying it because a loan that is not re- repaid in the specified amount of time is and ends up being income in your pocket that you have to pay tax on. So same issue as these as these sort of shareholder loan accounts, the ins and the outs, is we just have to make sure that we're keeping track of, of these amounts and when there's a requirement for repayment. And I've also been suggesting to clients that even though it's a personal loan to yourself, it doesn't hurt to document that in some way in the form of a loan agreement uh, where you're setting out what the terms of repayment are. Sometimes what's helpful about that too is it it actually is a document you can go back to that reminds you, oh yeah, I did I did give that loan to myself. Because I, I think sometimes we get so caught up in our day-to-day business that you just do what you have to do. And then suddenly a year goes by, two years go by, you totally forget that this has happened. You know, Give a copy of it to your accountant. Have all of your records be be consistent. So whatever is in your books is also what's in your legal documents. And you should know for yourself, you know, what does your company owe you and what do you owe your company? That's Those are two really important numbers to be aware of. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a really prudent idea, the idea of a written agreement. At the end of this, the day, these, this is not the type of thing that business owners want to think about, right? This is not what, what they got into business for. And, uh, and they do just think of it as it's their, I hear it all the time. It's my baby. This is, you know, it's a corporation, but really it's just me. Um, that stuff doesn't stand up to a CRA auditor, unfortunately. And, and there's nothing worse as your tax lawyer when, when we're sitting here trying to explain this to CRA and we've got, you know, five, five sheets of paper where we say, well, this money went from here to here, but then we recorded it over here and then it went back over here. And oh, and then we have this record over here, even if it's completely legit and we can get ourselves back to the right place. You don't want to have to show how it routed through five different places to get there. That's that's bad. There should never be that many pieces of paper. And most of the time, there is no paper. It's just an explanation. And I think paper is king. And that's something that we'll probably repeat a few times throughout this is, I'm finding in particular in the last five to 10 years, you can verbally say stuff 
Um, but it does not hold weight. That idea of having, you know, contemporaneous documentation or documentation prepared at the time of the transaction, that is your gold star. And it doesn't have to be pretty, but as long as there's something that shows that intention and shows that tracing, man, that can, if you do get the audit call, it just ends it because you've got something right away that you can give. Yeah. Should probably be more more sufficient than your visa statements. I mean, everyone just wants to give me the visa statements and say, "Look, I put a check mark next to each one that was personal, and I put an X next to each one that was business." But it's just uh, you, you need you need to be more organized than that, unfortunately. Well, and I find too a lot of people really underestimate the power of having a bookkeeper and think, oh, well, I don't have that many transactions. You know, what's the big deal? And I think if you're listening to this and, and you're a business owner and you really hate keeping track of your expenses and your receipts, look into getting a bookkeeper, if if nothing else, to help you set up your system. Because I think if you can set up a good foundational system and you know what you have to do, that's like the starting point. And it won't cost you that much to do that. And then, you know, as you're moving along in your business, consider just hiring someone to do the books for you. They'll they'll help you. They'll help flag things for you. They'll help to organize things for you. And it's still your responsibility, but it, it's such an important member of your team. Totally. And they're they're a lot cheaper than tax disputes. They are. They're a lot cheaper than us, but yeah. they do way more important work because they're laying that <laughs> foundational work. We're, yeah. we're, we're like the ambulance at the bottom, but they're the fence <laughs> at the top. <laughs> right. Well, anything else on shareholder loan accounts that you want to address? No, I think you covered it. You, you got to understand it. You got to ask, get a bookkeeper, ask them questions, understand what what's in that shareholder loan account, review it at the end of the year and and save yourself a lot of headache. Great summary. Great summary. Well, should we move to the next favorite topic of net worth assessments? I'm sure, I'm sure you've had some that have gone south. I've had some that have gone south. Uh, let's talk about what those are um, and how you can kind of prepare for, for one if one arrives. Sure. So a net worth assessment or audit is basically the way that CRA tries to essentially catch people who they presume might have been taking cash under the table. That's that's basically uh, the bottom line about it. So what CRA does is they come in and they look at all your assets, um, your properties, your bank accounts, uh, your etc. They also look at all your liabilities, your loans, your mortgages, etc. And they see if you're if you're assets are going up more uh, than than your reported income uh, can explain. So if your assets went up after factoring out your liabilities, if your act- assets went up by 100,000 uh, and you were only reporting 50,000, they're going to ask where that delta came from, where that 50,000 extra came from. And if you can't explain it, uh, then CRA will uh, assume that it's unreported cash income. Um, they also look at your personal expense expenses that factors in. So they're looking at all your bank account and credit card expenses. Um, they can sometimes even use Stats Canada data to see if you're, you know, if you are maybe paying for all your groceries in cash or or something of that nature. So it's it's really set up to to target the what they call the underground economy, and uh, and they are brutal. They're brutal because they're inherently inaccurate. The courts have even said, like, look, we know these are inaccurate, um, but they do, they have stood up in court. So they, they do, they are legitimate. And, um, and, and yeah, they, they, we have to fight against them. When we, when we get them, we can't just say, oh, this is unfair. We actually have to grapple with it and sink into the numbers and, and, and push back on them, which is laborious. 
Well, and I feel like almost anybody, if you put a net worth assessment on them, would end up owing money. Like I, I, I don't see how you would not, just because of the nature of the way it works. And and I think that so often, especially in today's day and age, where we're sending e transfers all the time and, and all sorts of things are happening, all these transactions are going through your accounts. And and this is even if you're not a business. This is if you're like an individual that we don't record. So you know, I had a client who her child was in Girl Guides. And so, you know, that requirement where you have to buy all the Girl Guide cookies first and then you then you get reimbursed. So she had bought all these Girl Guide cookies and then her daughter went out and sold them at five bucks a pop. Well, she didn't record every $5 that came back in from these Girl Guide cookies. Well, it ended up being a significant sum of money because they were doing this big campaign. So Siri wouldn't believe us. We said, well, do you want us to phone up all these like neighbors that purchased these Girl Guide cookies? So that was an example. Or, um, you know, we'll have things where two families are going on a trip together. And it's just easier for one family to book the flights. So then that one family books the flights, they they cut the price in half and they say to the other family, okay, pay us that half. Well, no one's recording that, oh, this $1,000 came from that. Or we had another client who got married mm-hmm. in a particular year. And so they got all these wedding gifts, a lot of which was cash. Well, luckily, their, the spouse had saved the list, the thank you list of, of who had given what. But again, we were trying to track why that went into bank accounts. There's just all these things that are happening in your life that you you don't bother keeping track of because you don't think you need to. And, and you know that a lot of these things are gifts, so you're not reporting them on your income tax return. But it all looks very shady on the other side when someone starts looking through your bank statements and your credit card statements and trying to figure out how these two things are matching. It's a bit, yeah, it would be, I mean, I haven't had one on myself, but it would be a very icky feeling. I can, I can totally <laughs> sympathize with my client. It feels very invasive. Uh, I think, you know, like for my, for my clients, some of them are, are like literally losing their shirt. I'm sure if sure it's the same for you from some of these networks. So like yes. the little stuff, it's, it's like, it, it's annoying, but you got to let some of it go. The big stuff can, can lead to assessments. We're talking again, 300, 500 million dollars what CRA is coming after these clients for I find the the riskiest stuff and this kind of um segues back to our previous conversation the riskiest stuff is when you have a business and there's a lot of money coming in and out so you Mm -hmm. you, there's a lot of potential for double tax there where essentially the same money is flowing in then it's flowing back then it's flowing to a line of credit then it's flowing back and you get a situation where a CRA auditor comes in you know they just kind of plug numbers into an excel sheet and it spits out a number and and we're let we're left to to critique it and to scrutinize it and find out where the errors are and often it is this same money that's moving around um but again the best defense to this stuff similar to our first conversation is really good documents that show when money is coming in and out keeping really good records if you're investing in your corporation um having a good accountant keeping tight books on your corporation uh, and then also just, you know, I, I'm sure the people who are listening to your podcast aren't making <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars of unreported income and, and you know, I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, the roofers and the restaurants and the barbershops and all these places where there's a lot of cash, those people have yes. to have to know that there is this way that CRA can come. And it's a, it's quite a, an effective way for CRA to come and evaluate your finances and you, you got to be re- very careful because it's it's not worth it. Well, I remember after I, I had to go through my first one, not for myself, but for a client, and it was it was literally like a five year battle, and mm-hmm. and you know we didn't really win because you can never really win one of these. Like you get a partial win because you you argue some of it, 
And I remember how it changed the way that I personally keep my records um, because I think that the best way to, to freak yourself out is by watching what happens to somebody else. Sure. And so now what I even do is on my bank statements or on my credit card statements, if there's a line item that does not sort of indicate in and of itself what it is, and this is personally, like my business stuff is all properly tracked, but even my sure. personal stuff, I'll say, you know, $100 for X, like I'll say what it is and oh, I'll wow. either handwrite it on the statement or I'll just, I mean, we all PDF this stuff now, do a quick type um, when I'm checking my statements at the end of the month, because I will not remember. I know <laughs> I won't remember and I'm a tax lawyer, so I have no defense. So if they come knocking at my door, I can't say, oh, I didn't know because I did. Um, so that's something I've started doing and it makes me feel a little better. Um, and I've been telling my clients to make sure they go in and download all of their statements because yeah. there can be such a cost even to try to gather the information. So um, I know sometimes we'll have these net worth statements going back way past the statute barred period. So back, you know, past three years, past four years, and the statements are not always available online you know, for more than five years. And so then you have to phone the bank and then the bank charges you per page. And so if there's a place that you can either, you know, dump these into Dropbox or into Google Docs or somewhere that you're saving these statements as you go, will save you so much time and money if you get one of these calls. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point. And, and, and also uh, along the same vein is if you do get a call about one of these, you need to get a tax professional in there quickly. Yes. Um, accountants have some experience with this, but I think most of them would admit that this is not kind of what they're doing on the regular basis. And as the more time that time passes, the more these kind of things kind of snowball and mm -hmm. the harder it is to go back and get the documentation and even the, the memory, as you mentioned, the, the, the recollection of, of how this money was moving. So the, the longer it is from the day that you receive kind of that first letter from CRA to the point that you're really engaging a, a tax expert to dispute this stuff, the longer that gap is, the more kind of laborious uh, the dispute process is. Well, and I think it's important too for people to realize that if they get a letter or a call about a net worth audit, CRA has already been working on this behind the scenes for several months, which I personally find quite creepy because you think about the fact they've gone to your bank, they've gone to your credit card company, they have the power to request all those documents. Mm -hmm. So they've gone and by the time you hear from them, they already have their spreadsheets. They've already come to their conclusion, which is a little different than sort of a standard audit where usually they're coming with one query and it's it's more of a, a big picture review. With the net worth, they've often been doing things behind the scenes for a bit. And so you're already kind of coming into it behind the eight ball. And mm -hmm. so there's no time to sort of sit around and think it's going to get better. You need to establish your team as soon as possible. And you'll know it's a net worth audit because they will literally say that. So I, I have some clients say, well, how do I know? Well, it'll literally say it in the letter. You know, this is a this is a net worth audit or they'll use that type of phraseology. And you'll see schedules attached that show your assets, your liabilities and the income that you've reported. So this is not something you're going to have to figure out. You'll know that that's what mm -hmm. they're doing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So super, super scary. Anything else on these net worth assessments or should we move to a somewhat happier topic? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's move to a happier topic. I like that. Input tax credits. Those are good things. When yeah. you do them properly, you get some money back. So let, let's right. talk a bit about those. That's right. Okay. So input tax credits, we've now you know closed your metaphorical uh, income tax act and you've opened your metaphorical uh, excise tax act. Uh, I'm using both of mine to prop up my microphone here. Um, uh, me too. Me too. Yeah. Good. So, uh, so yeah, so this is, we're talking GST and HST here. The rules are the same, whether you're in a GST province or an HST province. 
Um, the idea here is that the government knows that if they charge um, HST or GST on every component of a final product, that, that the price of that product will be astronomical compared to what it is right now. For example, if you have a car and, and CRA, the, the final burden of a builder of the car had to pay HST on the tires that they, they bought to put on the car and the engine they bought to put on the car and the windshield wipers they had to put on the car and they didn't get any of that money back, then eventually that money would just be pushed onto the final consumer and it would have jacked prices up. So the way they deal with that is that when they collect that percentage of GST and HST from the from the purchaser, before they remit it to the government, they're entitled to claim the, the HST that they paid or GST that they paid on the components of that product. So for a lot of businesses, uh, you know, maybe a contractor or, or you know, I just recently had a, a big landscaping company um, and they got to they got ITCs input tax credits for all of the suppliers and subcontractors for all the HST that they paid to them. So that money got reimbursed to them from the government for a lot of businesses. That's big money. It's a big it's, it's a big component of their kind of financial well-being is getting that credit at the end from the government back. Um, what do you think of that explanation before I talk about how this could go wrong? Yeah, I really like that. And I think that it's it's important to remember that it's somewhat of a cash flow issue sometimes. So it can sometimes be that you're first paying GST and then you're claiming GST back. Um, and so it there are, of course, I'm guessing you're going to get into it, but there are requirements for how you can get there. But it's avoiding that double or triple taxation on the same service or product as it kind of goes down the line. So I think that's a great summary. Yeah. So that's the theory on how ITCs work in general. The issue then is when you go to make your claim, so you're now getting this money back from the government, um, you there are there are really strict re- requirements for the documentation that you have to have in order to satisfy um, in order to satisfy your burden and be entitled to that money back from the government. So this is not I think for a lot of people they're used to collecting receipts, right? And you just kind of think you never look at a receipt if you're going to claim mm-hmm. it for income tax purposes for an, for an ex, a normal expense for income tax. But for for GSC HST, there's there's this heightened burden uh, that the government places on all of us. So for this is they've, they've got kind of a tiered uh, system. So it, it, for ones that are over one hundred and fifty dollars, there's there's issues that I see kind of come up time and time again. Um, the first is that is that you have to have there has to have been a valid GST HST number on uh, in the documentation that you receive from your let's call them your subcontractor or your supplier of some sort. What, I, what I've learned from this process, which I certainly did not know before I started handling these disputes, was every time you're, or, or initially when you're, certainly when you're first paying a new supplier, you should be checking their registration on CRA's got, uh, website to make sure that that supplier is who they say they are and that their, val- their number is valid. 
I was nodding and then I realized this is a podcast and nobody could see me nodding. <laughs> I, I'm going to put that GST, HST registry site in the show notes for this because I think a lot of people don't know about that. It is a free search function. And I, I tell all my clients to do this. I do it personally when I'm paying suppliers. You can literally type in what you understand to be the supplier's business name, which should be the name on the invoice. You type in what, what they're saying their GST number is. And then you type in a transaction date, which would be the date of the invoice. And then you press submit and see what happens. And if it comes back and says that this person's not registered, um, don't panic. It could be that the the business name is different and you might need a bit of an amendment to the invoice. Or it could mean that they're not registered. And if they're not registered, A, you shouldn't be paying them GST. Uh, and B, you're not going to get your input tax credits back. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it does feel like with these types of cases, it does feel that like you're essentially you've been given this burden to essentially audit your suppliers and make sure that they're, you know, doing all their kind of business right. And that's a weird feeling for us to have. I don't think people appreciate that they they have been put that burden has been put on them. But if they don't satisfy that burden, then their ITC gets denied and it's them who ends up getting hurt. Um, so that's one of the one of the requirements that's that's essentially on us is to check the HST number. There's some I think there's some you know the case law which I had to review recently is is different on okay do I have to check it if I have one supplier who's supplying me all the time do I have to check it every time? Right. Uh, I, I think the answer is to that is is no unless there's some sort of reason to be suspicious. But I think it wouldn't be it's not a bad idea to have a process where maybe depending on how important that supplier is, how how critical that your ITCs are, or maybe you're checking every quarter or checking every what year where you're just going through all your major suppliers and double checking their their GST HST numbers. What do you think about that as kind of a preventative measure? I really like that because I think it doesn't make it too onerous, but it'll also help you to catch stuff um, in the event that there's there's issues. And I think the other thing to keep an eye out for, and and I find this one has been happening a lot to my clients lately is that the invoice will be rendered to the wrong name. So not even so much, you know, the supplier on the other end, whether their stuff is correct, but who are they saying that they supplied services to? And is that name matching the name that's actually claiming the input tax credit? Because CRA doesn't like it when they're different and they will deny it. And that's another one of those situations where you can't go back and go, oops, um, actually it was supposed to be this company and, and try to fix it after the fact. They do want to have it consistent. And I find that's a tough one because sometimes when you're ordering something, you know, the shipping address versus the invoice address, we've had that at the office too, right? That you have to sort of double check and get that fixed. So kind of pay attention to that. And and I know I have some clients that have just created like a, a little stamp for themselves, you know, got one done. That's their kind of their little checklist when they're approving their payables. And one of the things is, you know, is there a GST number? Is the correct name there? Um, those kind of things that they can assure themselves that somebody has checked it um, before it gets approved. Yeah, I think that's that's a great idea because you're right. It's critical. I've I've had situations where someone it was an optometry clinic and they had a holding company and then an operating company and it was the holding company that paid uh, the HST, but it was the operating company that received the invoice. CRA comes back later and denies it. We were able to to find a workaround for that, but that's mm -hmm. not always going to happen. So, it CRA does have the authority to deny it on that basis. The legislation does say that it has mm -hmm. to be your name on it. The other situation is, is with, you know, you know, the contractor who's got a corporation, but everybody just knows them as Joe. And yes. so the invoice is written to Joe, but it's the corporation that's trying to claim the ITC. 
that's that's that won't fly either. So um, so this is this is really important stuff that have, people have to be diligent about. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. We see that one a lot, and I think there's this feeling that well, they're all my companies, or it's all part of the the same corporate group. But it all ties back into that conversation we had earlier about shareholder loan accounts and bookkeeping and documentation. There is a requirement to be exact, and and it's not it's not like horseshoes. It's not like close enough. You you have to be exact, and mistakes happen, but you have to put these systems in place so that. There's consistency across the board of who's reporting what, where it's showing up on your general ledger, on your expenses, um, how that's showing up on your books and records, and then what's happening on the invoices, what's happening on the bank accounts. Is the money coming out of the right bank account? If not, how are you allocating that? You, You just can't grab from one place to pay another. No. And those, because these are ITCs and the government is cutting a check for you, their standard for this stuff is very different from income tax. So don't let the fact that you've you've kind of developed a habit or, or, or a threshold of kind of diligence for your for your income tax um, in, uh, receipts. Don't let that kind of permeate your ITC processes because it, it is a higher standard. Yeah, that's true. I mean, anything with GST or payroll uh, source deductions, just remember if you're listening to this, those are trust funds of the government. It is way worse when you have problems in those categories versus when you have problems in the income tax category, because the government considers those to have been their funds to begin with. So it's like you've stolen from the government. And that is a that is a huge deal. And it's much more difficult to get out of those issues. And the requirement for perfection is so much higher. I, I'm thinking that, you know, there could be people listening to this that are kind of starting to prep their their books and records to get going for this income tax season and and just to do their regular GST filings who might be in a bit of a panic um, after listening to us and thinking, oh boy, that's not how I've been doing things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do, do we have any advice for those people? I would just say that kind of now's the time <laughs> because it's it's you're supposed to have this documentation prior to making the claim in which you're claiming that ITC. So so now is the time. One more uh, requirement just before I forget is um, I, the other one that I see commonly is like, the invoice won't include this, the amount of tax. It'll just say, you know, $5,000 and it won't, it, it, and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, my client will come back to me and we'll say, oh, well, Dean, I, I always knew I always had an agreement with this person that it would include tax. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't say that on the invoice and it doesn't really say that anywhere. So it, you want the invoice to say the specific amount of GST or HST that, that is included in that payment. Um, you can have other supporting document that address these issues that we're talking about, but it's certainly much easier if it's all in the invoice. So we want to have a clear supplier name that matches the GST number. We want to have it, the invoice addressed to the correct entity that's going to be paying the bill and claiming the ITC. And we want to have the amount on the invoice set out that you can see that what amount is GST or HST separate from the overall amount owing. Yeah. There's some other little requirements in there, but those are the three ones that I'm seeing most often cause the issues. I agree with you. I think those are the ones that I would see the most often as well. Yeah. And and I agree with your earlier comment that the time is now. So if, if you've been in business for 10, 15 years and you're listening to this and thinking, I have never looked at any of this stuff and there's this moment of, of panic, 
Well, the easiest way to handle it is to start with your current situation. So don't try to go back 15 years. Start right now and start to get your systems in place so that on a go-forward basis, you've got it cleaned up. And then you can start to, to look backwards if you need to to see if there's cleanup that's necessary or if there's an error that's been made. But at least start from now uh, and try to fix it on a go-forward basis. Exactly. Anything else on, on ITCs that you want to cover? Those are the major ones. Yeah, that's 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 what I wanted to get across most importantly. I feel like ITCs and the discussion about that is similar to the discussion on write-offs because people just think, oh, I can just, you know, claim back my GST or oh, I can just write off these things. And and no one really stops to think about what documentation is required. And I always say if the government has to pay you something back, trust me, there's a high level of documentation that is required <laughs> before you're gonna get your money. <laughs> Right. That's exactly right. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much for coming on today. I think these are these are three very practical topics that I'm certainly seeing a lot of. You're seeing a lot of. I hope that if uh, you're listening to this, that we gave you some foundational information. So if nothing else, if you hear the words net worth audit or you hear the words input tax credits, then now you know what they are and you know what issues to kind of look out for. Do you have any um, final parting words of wisdom for our listeners, Dean? No, I would, uh, other than keep listening to the podcast, I think uh, I, I really uh, respect what you're doing here with this. And uh, I think it's great. And I know that, you know, just as a listener of the podcast, I know that you're not talking about tax dispute stuff as as often. I think maybe you might uh, do more of that, but um, it's certainly, I, I know you're a heavy hitter in the uh, in the tax dispute world. I know I know you've got the credentials, so it's it's nice for me to be able to listen to it and and, and feel camaraderie with your approach and how you handle things and and uh, all that you know. Well, and it's so funny because I actually feel like tax litigation is my first love. It's the thing that gets me the most excited. But then I realized after talking with you that I really wasn't talking about it that much on my podcast or on my blog. And yet there's so many people that have questions. So you have reignited my nice. desire and passion to talk about this more often. And we'll definitely have to have you back on again. I see some many more collaborations in our future. And maybe someday we can actually meet in person. That would be wonderful. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Well, that is all we have time for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope we gave you some food for thought or at least made you laugh. Please see the show notes for any resource material that we reference throughout the episode and to find out more about my amazing guest today. And if you'd like to learn more about any of the topics that we covered on today's podcast or about other topics relating to tax in general, I do invite you to sign up for my monthly newsletter, Musings of a Tax Chick, and follow me on Instagram. My handle is at tax.chick. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and also click subscribe so you make sure you never miss a new episode. Please note that the views thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode belong solely to the speakers and are not necessarily the views of the speaker's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. In addition, the information provided and discussed in this podcast is not legal advice. We encourage you to consult with your legal advisor for specific advice.